is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on aftershave and they go out and smell each other. Dave, age eight, he said this. He said, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. Um, (laughs) Some really good advice for love um, for those of us who are married. This is helpful. Husbands. Ricky, age seven, said this. Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. And then Erin, age eight, said, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. So, love, what is love? What is this love thing? Um, This was um, written by a a wise lady I know. She said this. She said, if you love something, set it free. If it comes back, it was and always will be yours. If it never returns, it was never yours to begin with. If it just sits in your room, messes up your stuff, eats your food, uses your telephone, takes your money, and never behaves as if it actually was set free in the first place, you either married it or gave birth to it. Now, we might identify with some of that thing, and we talk about love. We talk about being in love. We talk about experiencing love. We talk in the Christian context about love, but do we really know what love is? This Easter, um, as a family, we went down to Weymouth, and we had a bit of a holiday for a few days. We went to a restaurant, and it was really interesting. In this restaurant on the menu, um, my kids love burgers, but we didn't actually pick a burger that night. But that night in this restaurant, it was really interesting in the menu, um, there was... uh, you could pick all sorts of things, but you could build your own burger, which sounds a bit strange, it's like build a bear, but kind of a meat version. But it was literally, you could pick the type of bun you wanted from a choice, and then your next layer of kind of salads, and then gherkins, and then the type of burger. There were, there were a dozen different kind of meats, and then different types of cheeses, and then the different kind of salads and salsas, and, and you could build your own burger. And as I was sitting looking at this thing, um, thinking I'm not going to have a burger, it, it, it made me think, what, what would happen... If we decided we were going to build the perfect Christian, what would the perfect Christian look like? If you could get a a menu of all the different bits that you think would make the perfect Christian, what might they look like? It's like the story of Frankenstein, isn't it? Um, Victor von Frankenstein. He's a professor and he he wants to build this human and he kind of gets bits. And it's a strange story, isn't it? Shelley's Frankenstein story. But what, what would it be like if... Some slightly mad Russian Bath Uni PhD graduate, Dr. Ivan, decided that he was going to try and build a perfect Christian. Well, he might give it the gleaming hair and shiny white teeth of a great evangelist. Patience of Job, jokes of Mike Pilavachi, possibly. Courage of Stephen, the ability to play all the latest Bethel Hill songs and Ren Collective tracks on various instruments. You'd think about them wanting to be Faithful church attenders, generous in giving, ability to resist temptation, good looks, good knowledge of Old and New Testament books, theological passion. We can think of all sorts of things to make the perfect Christian, but we heard in that passage, didn't we? If I speak in the language of angels but do not have love, if I have the gift of prophecy and can understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains and have not love, if I give all my possessions to the poor and give my body to the flames to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. So you might put all these things into it, but you end up creating a bit of a monster because unless love is at the center of all we are and all we do, then what is it? It's just like this gonging symbol.
It's like I said last week, the, the gifts of the Spirit, fantastic. I'm passionate about the gifts of the Spirit and being really running after those things. But actually, you can prophesy all you want. You can have supernatural gifts. But if you haven't got love at the bedrock of it, then what is it? Love, true, dynamic, world-transforming, authentic, bulletproof love has to be at the center of everything. In fact, it has to be at the beginning of everything and at the end of everything because love is everything. So what do we mean when we talk about love? What is this love thing? We, we do it glibly, don't we? I love the cozy club. I love Justin Bieber. I, lo- I don't love Justin Bieber. I love coffee. I love chocolate. Whatever it may be, we say. But love isn't this kind of, kind of sentimental, fluffy, weak thing. We know this stuff, but it's true. But it's incredibly powerful. Encountering that love of God, receiving that love, allows us to be changed and swept along in the current of his dynamic love. This passage in John 13 fascinates me, these words of Jesus. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's quite a big deal, isn't it? Jesus is saying that to his disciples on the kind of brink of the cross. As I have loved you, I want you to love each other. How did he love them? Well, endlessly ludicrously, sacrificially, to the point of death. He loved and he loved. And as he loved, he's commanding us to love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So love, what is it? What does this love do for us? What does it look like? Love, if you look at it in the dictionary, is defined as strong affection, desire, or devotion. But often we reduce it to, I love guacamole and episodes of whatever. Made in Chelsea. Whatever it is you watch. I hope you don't watch that. We, we reduce it to this sort of sentimental thing that we really, really like. And of course that's fine. That's language, isn't it? But Christian love, deep love from God is supposed to be so much more. Um, I don't know how, much, how many of you have read much C.S. Lewis stuff. It's incredible, his writing, still today. And um, he, he's... Um, written a profound book many years ago entitled Four Loves and he explains biblically the kind of different kind of loves that are in the world and that we can speak of biblically Storge the first one is affection between family or acquaintances then there's filio friendship eros which of course the world is really into isn't it intimate romantic sexual love I guess And then he talks of agape, which is the deep love of God. And these four loves actually are all beautiful expressions from God, expressions of what it means to be human, to be created in the image of God, and to share in his likeness and share in his character, to know and to to love, to to love and to know love. And Jesus, knowing that God is love, then makes this incredible promise and plea to, to his friends and to us in John 15. He says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Dwell in my love, he says. And it's almost like, I think Jesus is almost urging us, As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Please dwell in my love. Which means by implication, it's possible to not dwell in his love. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. 
So we have this verse which is used in weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. We uh, had it read beautifully by Jonathan a moment ago. The love chapter, the love chapter, it's often called that. And it's used in weddings because it sounds great. But actually, it is beautifully powerful. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. And we know from Scripture, right, that God is love. could say lots of things, but God is love. That's a biblical thing there. So you could read that passage in this way. If God is love, then God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. He's not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. We know that as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, so far I've removed your transgressions from you. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. God's love is is bigger than we can imagine. We'll never get to the end of God's love. But wherever we're at in our relationship with God, there's always such uh, more capacity of God's love to be poured out for us and for us to explore and to receive and to know. And sometimes we can read a list like that and think, oh my goodness, I'm so far off that. It's like I was talking about the fruit of the Spirit last week. We can read a list of the fruit of the Spirit, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and we think, oh, you're good at that one? Not so much on that one. And we kind of, we measure ourselves. And then we think, right, I'm going to try and be more patient. I'm going to try and be more good. And that's, that's a good heart. But the point is they're fruits of the Spirit. And so as we dwell in him and dwell with him and soak in him, the fruits can begin to grow in us and through us. Love is patient. Patient means to have hopeful forbearance, to have endurance, staying power. Love's not self-seeking. See, true love is always about the other, isn't it? It's always about rather than about what I get, what I want. Love is not about us. It's sacrificial. True love is sacrificial. You give without any expectation in return. And that's, that's mesmerizing when we think about that with God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, sometimes we do stuff for other people because we know there's going to be a trade-off. Whereas God sent his son Jesus to die for humanity, not really knowing actually what humanity's response would be. Because there's no, we're not being forced into accepting him or receiving him or choosing him. But actually he died while we were sinners. God's love is sacrificial. It gives away and it longs for a return to know that love. But it's never forced. It's never pushed because that's not love if it's pushed in that way. It says that if you truly love someone, you trust them no matter what. The love, true love never dies. It lives forever in that way. And that's the challenge for us then as humans, isn't it? How do we as humans love as God has loved us? He shows us agape love, perfect love, love without flaw, pure and unending. And the reality is, I know in my life, I can be as guilty as as the next person that actually... I'm not great at always sharing that love or even expressing that love unconditionally with others. It's easy to love those who are like us, 
or who we like or who we know or who we've got used to. Perhaps those that have a similar status to us, a similar way of thinking. But what about others? Sometimes hard to love, particularly when we're tired or when we feel drained or weary or perhaps we've been hurt. It's hard to love maybe the guy that stands on the corner begging for money that you know he's going to use for drink. Or the guy at work who gossips and digs about you behind your back. Or the mother that leaves a four-year-old at home while she goes off to buy drugs. Or the person in church that just really annoys you and gets under your skin. Or the leader in church that just really annoys you and gets under your skin. And the list goes on and on. It's really easy to find people that we find it hard to love, isn't it, perhaps? And the truth is that Jesus came to save the wretched and to love the wretched and the poor, the unlovable, the unworthy, the ungrateful, the sinners, the scum. You, me. God's love is always directed outwards towards others, not inward. It's unselfish. And if we're honest, that's the kind of love that often goes against our inhuman inclinations. I've talked about the, the perichoresis, the beautiful dance of the, the Trinity, this glorious relationship where they're honoring the other and preferring the other and, and sharing love towards the other. And there's this beautiful harmony in the Trinity where there's this love fest. <laughs> it's not really a biblical theological expression, but that's what's happening there. They're loving each other with such a beautiful intensity. And you and I are amazingly invited into that fellowship, that friendship. And actually, that's why we've got to spend time dwelling with him. I think the only way we can increasingly show and know that kind of love is with the help of God himself that he wants to help us with. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Dwell in my love. I think we can only give away what we've got. So if you take nothing else away from tonight, as we think about this opening thing of love, fruit of the Spirit... The word is dwell. Do we dwell with him? Love's often thought of as a feeling, but in reality it's a choice and an action. In the New Testament, love is used as a noun 110 times and a verb 137 times. 247 times the word love is referenced in that sort of way. And I wonder if that should tell us something. It's it's an action. It's 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 an implicit action. God is the source of love. And he's calling us to step out in his love. And Jesus is that beautiful, perfect example of love to the world. Demonstration of agape love. When he reached out to touch, to physically touch the leper. He could have just spoken the word. He often did. Spoke the word and people were healed. But here's a man who hadn't been touched. Who had been excluded from worship, from the temple, from his community, from his fellowship and friendship. Who hadn't known intimacy with anyone. And Jesus physically reaches out and touches him. That's love. When he fed the hungry thousands, he could have sent, the disciples wanted to send them home to go and get their lunch. But Jesus said, no, 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 feed them. It's love when he did that miracle. Love when he cried because his friend Lazarus died. Love. When Jesus took the spear in his side, love. When they placed the crown of thorns on his head. When they beat him, when they spat on him. And when he was silent, it's love. He didn't have to allow it. He could have called on an army of angels. But he didn't. He loved. And I know I need more love. I need more of God's love in my life. And so a good place to start, I think, is recognizing my, our poverty of love at times. 
and to yield more to him, to become empty of sin by asking for and receiving his forgiveness. We were doing that tonight. We were in worship, coming before him, coming back to the cross, as Hayden shared, as Julie shared, letting God fight those battles where we feel that we're struggling in our life, where we're failing, that he fights on our behalf, the lion and the lamb. It's incredible, the power of that. Love drives us. Love compels us. And love is really, really, really powerful. So for a little while, I've had this song lyric in my head. I was talking to some of the team about it here on Tuesday. There's a song that was written a few years ago by um, a guy called um, Chris Tomlin, and he'd written a song called Kindness. And... um, I think I might have sung it a couple of weeks ago here, just randomly. It's it's a few years old now. But this line from this song kept coming back to me for about two or three months. And this line goes, It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It's actually from from Romans. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. I went on a retreat before Easter, and I I was thinking about this line, and I put this song in and was listening to it and thinking, See, that's a crazy thing, really. Now, I'm a parent. I've got three beautiful children and occasionally they do things wrong most of you here will have occasionally done things wrong and if you think back to your parents or uh, if you're a parent here and your kid does something wrong or you've done something wrong I think of myself as quite a good quite a good dad okay not perfect but I think I'm quite good but when my child does something wrong I was thinking what is it that makes me how do I get my kids to say sorry It usually involves me shouting at them, telling them to say sorry. Or saying, just look at what you've done. Isn't that disgusting? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that fun? Look what you've made your mum feel. (laughs) Or something like that. Or a thousand other really, really kind of bad ways of trying to get my kids to recognise what they've done wrong. And for teenagers, let's say, and maybe some of you will recognize this, that when I tell my kids sometimes to say sorry, you say sorry for that. Sorry. Anyone here ever done that before? (laughs) Do you think that's repentance? I mean, it's kind of going through the action. It's saying the words, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really sorry. And you kind of hear in the voice, and, and you know, I suddenly sound like my dad because I hear myself saying, well, you don't sound very sorry. And suddenly I'm transported back to when I was 14 and there's my dad saying it to me. Because, of course, in the moment you feel, I don't know, maybe you feel shame or you feel angry. No, it wasn't my fault, it was him. You know, as a a boy, I was always trying to blame someone else, usually one of my other three. It was very useful having three brothers because there was always one of them who wasn't around that I could blame and say did it. You know, we, we, we want to excuse ourselves. And so we use anger. Why did you do that? And sometimes, you know, children will be terrified and they'll say sorry. But in that verse it says, it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. So when I want my children to repent, Lord, are you telling me that I've got to be really kind to them? Actually, they need a right good telling off and a bit of a whack around the head. Not that we do that anymore. But, you know, I want to inside. I certainly want to shout at them. No, God says, it's, it's, and then this little voice in my head says, yeah, Tim, you know all those awful things you've done in your life and, you know, and today? 
what was it that brought you to repentance? And I suddenly realized with massive conviction it's the kindness of God. It's this lavish river of love that pours out that in the face of that, we step back and say, Lord, how can I be like this? And we fall to our knees and say, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you change my heart? See, God doesn't beat us into repentance. God doesn't shame us into repentance. God doesn't shout us down and say, look how holy I am and look how much of a worm you are. Now repent. He pours out his lavish love on us. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit washes over us. And then our repentance isn't sorry. It's Sometimes it's not even words, is it? It's tears. It's true repentance. And while I was thinking about all this and puzzling about all this, <laughs> I was reminded of Paddington Bear. This is a slight left turn at the traffic lights. And at the word Paddington Bear, Caleb runs out. I don't know if you, anyone's seen the new film, Paddington Bear 2, the new one? A few of you. Okay. Go and look at it. It's brilliant for And I was thinking about Paddington Bear. See, he's this bumbling, slightly foolish, slightly awkward. He's got a really good heart, but he often gets things really wrong. He really reminds me of me. He's quite sweet, but I just think, oh, no, he gets things terribly wrong. I won't ruin the film for you, but he gets put in prison, (laughs) which is perhaps unexpected for Paddington Bear. He gets put in prison. And I was watching this film with my family. I went to the cinema to watch it, and we watched it again over Easter. And I found myself crying at one point in the film. This is not cool as a man crying to Paddington Bear, right? This is a bear that's not even a real bear that can talk. And I'm crying. And I'm thinking, why am I crying? There's this bit in the movie where he's in prison. And he's with these really tough, hardened, vicious kind of criminals. And there's this beautiful bit in the cafe. I won't read it. You must go and watch it. But somehow, in the mystery of who he is, he's just really kind. Naively kind. Really simply loving these guys. Seeing the best in them. Hoping for the best in them. Even in the face of kind of potentially being beaten to death and ridiculed and laughed at. And they don't get him at all. But he just simply loves them. And he's really, really kind. Kind with his words. Kind with his heart. Kind with his gestures towards these toughened guys. And you think, this bear is going to be killed. <laughs> but suddenly, I, this bit where just he wins them. Now, I know it's just a cartoon, right? I know, it's this, I know Panton Bear's not a true story before you start panicking about me. But in it, I felt the heart of God. Thinking, you know, sometimes we think kindness is just such a weak, and I know the fruit of the Spirit tonight is not kindness, but we think this sort of love, Christian love and kindness, is just this sort of niceness, you know, Tim, the Christian, nice but dim kind of thing. We somehow have that view of ourselves, and maybe the world sometimes does. But let me tell you, the kindness of God and the love of God can transform hearts and culture and society in the world. And in this prison, these toughened men are won by Paddington Bear's kindness and his love. God wants to win our hearts with kindness. I'm going to give you a little clip of it just to whet your appetite. Here's a bit of Paddington. In the past month, 
these three shadowy individuals have all been seen snooping around three London landmarks. Oh. We think the thief you saw is part of a criminal gang, using the pop-up book as a treasure map. Well, it's a thief. So I've loved you. You are loved. You're loved tonight. Loved by the Father lavishly. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter your struggles, no matter whether you believe in him or not, he believes in you. He loves you. No matter if you don't know what the future holds, he holds the future for you. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Dwell in my love, says Jesus. Dwell in my love. Receive my love. Love can do far more than we could imagine. A few years ago, teenager Arthur Hinckley lifted a 3,000-pound tractor with his bare hands. He wasn't a weightlifter, but his friend Lloyd, who was 18, got pinned underneath his tractor on a farm. And hearing Lloyd scream, Arthur somehow managed to lift the tractor enough for Lloyd to wriggle out. Love motivated him to do the extraordinary, the supernatural. Mother Teresa, when asked how she accomplished such great things in her life, said this. None of us can do anything great on our own, but we can all do a small thing with great love. And we know great love. We know great love from Jesus. We know great love from the Father that's poured out for us. And my sense for us in these days is that God wants to deepen his love in us, that we receive that so that we can transmit that, so that we can be transformed, we can be made different, in order to make a difference. That's why um, the guys earlier, Ted and Andrew, were talking about um, this kind of men's Wild at Heart event. Both of them would testify to the fact that on it they encountered the Father's transforming love that changed their lives. And so that's why a load of us as men, I'm going, booking in tomorrow, and we're going to encourage others to it. That's why we encourage people to do the Father Heart Week. Because it's a heart transformation place where we encounter the love of the Father that transforms our circumstances, makes us different so that we can make a difference in the world, that we can carry that light, that power, that love. And sometimes we need to just come like little children, like little Caleb, Caleb here, you know? We make it so complicated. He knows he's loved by his dad. We need to know the Father's love. Jesus says... We shall love one another as he has loved us. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we feel like the love that we have in our own hearts is so insignificant or weak. Sometimes we don't feel very lovable. So we find it hard to receive love. But the truth is we are endlessly loved. As Jenny said, there's, there's nothing we can do that will make you love us anymore. And there's nothing we've done that will make us be less loved by you. There's nothing that we can do in the future that will make you love us any less. We are loved lavishly, extravagantly, ludicrously, undeservedly. Because while we were still sinners, you died for us, Jesus. And your arms held out on the cross. So this is how much I love you as you opened your arms wide on that cross. And Father, that message isn't just for us as a bunch of people. 
It's for us as a known people. Every single person in this room known by name. Known and loved. Your name on the Father's heart. Your name on the lips of Jesus. As he intercedes for you because he loves you. So Father, would you help us receive your love? Would you help us grow in your love? And would you help us dwell in you so that we, your love might fill our hearts, our lives? Lord, we recognize that there are places in our hearts that we close to you. But we yield, we yield. And we say, fill us with your love. I just want to get the bands to...